Welcome to the Question Community Broadcast. The Question is a new disruptive community that provides a gathering place for those who wonder about our complex selves, our complex world, our complex universe. We are a non-religious and inclusive community that explores the many questions surrounding truth in order to encourage you on the important journey to find your own answers. The Question Community gathers every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary, starting at 7. Information on the community is available at our website, www.thequestion.ca. You can also join the community online at our Facebook page, which is The Question, and on Twitter, at TQCom, with two M's. You're now going to hear some highlights from our community gathering, where the question is asked through original arts and music, as well as thought-provoking presentations. This is Frederick Tamagi. Uh, I want to begin tonight with a couple of origin stories. Not quite the origin stories of superheroes, but close, as you'll see. These are stories from the field of geology. Is there any geologists in, in the room tonight? Ah, okay. Our friend Alex. Now, the first story is about the origin of this famous geological formation, the Devil's Tower on the eastern plains of Wyoming. And the story goes something like this. Long, long ago, two young First Nations boys out on a hunting expedition found themselves lost on a great prairie. They had been playing together one afternoon and had wandered far out of, out of the village, far out into the sagebrush. They came to a hill, and on the other side, they saw a herd of antelope, and of course, they wanted to hunt them. So they followed the herd for a while. Now, eventually, they got hungry and decided it was time to go home. But after following the wandering antelope so far from home, the two boys realized that they didn't know where they were. They started back in the direction where they thought their village was, but in reality, they only got farther and farther away from it. As darkness fell, the boys were exhausted, and they curled up beneath a tree and went to sleep. They got up the next morning, and they walked even further, still traveling the wrong way. For three days, the boys wandered, desperate to get home. How they wished that their parents, or elder brothers, or sisters, or fellow tribe members would find them as they walked on what is now the plains of Wyoming. But nobody did find them. And on the fourth day of their ordeal, the boys suddenly had a feeling that they were being followed. They looked around, and in the distance, they saw Mato, the bear. Now, this was no ordinary bear, but a giant bear, so huge that the boys would only be a small mouthful for him. The bear was so huge that the earth trembled at each step as he took when he pursued the boys. The boys started running, looking for a place to hide, but the giant bear was much faster than they. They stumbled, and the bear was almost upon them. They could see his wide open jaws full of enormous teeth. They could smell his hot breath. The boys were old enough to have learned to pray, so they called upon Wakantanka, the creator. Tonkashila, grandfather, have pity. Save us, they cried. Suddenly, the earth shook and began to rise underneath, and the boys rose with it. Out of the earth came a huge cone of rock, going up, 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 until it rose more than a 1,000 feet high, with the boys on top of it. Mato, the giant bear, 
was disappointed to see his meal disappearing into the clouds. Now, this bear was so huge that when he stood on his hind legs, he could almost reach to the top of the rock, almost, but not quite. With claws that were as large as teepee poles, Mato dug into the side of the rock, trying to get up, trying to reach for the boys. As he did so, he gouged at the towering rock, creating huge scratches on the side of the rock. He tried every spot, every side, all around the rock, but it was no use. The boys waited in fear until Mato finally wore himself out and gave up. Now, relieved, the boys watched as the giant bear lumbered away, a huge, growling, grunting mountain of an animal gradually disappearing over the horizon. And that's how the Devil's Tower came into being. Now, my next story of origin from the world of geology is the story of the Giant's Causeway on the coast of Northern Ireland and its brother, Fingell's Cave on the coast of Western Scotland. It goes something like this. In ancient Gaelic times, the Irish warrior giant, Finn McCool, was locked in a fierce rivalry with a Scottish giant named Ben and Donner. The only obstacle to this rivalry was the 82 miles of ocean between Finn's home on the northern Irish coast and Ben and Donner's home on the Isle of Staffa in western Scotland. Now you can see from these two maps just kind of where Finn, uh, Giant's Causeway is and where Fingal's Cave is. Uh, and on the Google map, the, the two points are uh, marked by, you can't really see them actually, but they're actually just yellow thumbtacks. But you can see there's 82 miles of ocean between them. Now, this conflict motivated Finn McCool to build a bridge across the ocean's face so that the two giants might finally meet one another, fight, and settle the matter once and for all. What Finn didn't know was that Ben and Donner was actually a much larger giant than he and that such a battle was likely to end in horrible defeat. But an unsuspecting Finn set to cutting and collecting thousands upon thousands of gigantic stones, and he began plunging them into the earth, gradually crossing the ocean and completing the bridge to Ben and Donner's Scottish island home. However, the tremendous effort required to build the bridge exhausted poor Finn, and he returned to Ireland to take a nap and renew his strength before the final epic battle with his Scottish nemesis. During this break, Ben and Donner decided to turn the tables by launching a surprise attack on Finn, and he secretly crossed the new bridge to confront McCool on his own home turf. When Ben and Donner arrived at Finn's house, Finn's wife, a very large woman named Una, saw Ben and Donner approaching and was shocked by the enormous size of the Scottish giant. She realized that her poor sleeping husband had no chance to defeat such a beast, so she quickly covered Finn with a baby's blanket. Ben and Donner stood outside the house and roared, Where's Finn? Shush, shush, whispered Una from the doorway. You'll wake the wee one. <laughs> ben and Donner barged into the house and looked at the quiet figure covered by the blanket, and his jaw dropped open. He thought, if the child was that huge, what size could the father be? <laughs> now, terribly frightened himself, Ben and Donner wasn't sticking around to find out. So he ran away like the wind, destroying the causeway in his wake so Finn could not pursue him. Now, upon his return to the Isle of Staffa, Ben and Donner let the Scottish portion of the causeway at Fingal's cave remain standing 
as a perpetual reminder of his narrow escape from an embarrassing defeat. And that's how the Giant's Causeway and Fingal's Cave came into being. This is Tony Vare. This uh, next song is called Wonder Why I'm Here, up on the board in California. I wrote this one out by um, Waterton. Anybody been to Waterton? It started off as kind of a funny, uh, I was kind of feeling funny because it was raining out. And it was raining so hard and we were underneath a whole bunch of tarps and kind of wrapped it around the fire pit and tried to stay warm. And I was thinking, I wonder why I'm here. And then, um, the song kind of ended up really being a wonder why I'm here. Why are we here? Why, why, do I, why am I compelled to do this crazy thing called music? Um, I, I'm addicted. I can't help myself. <laughs>
soul guitar Every single chance I can simple judgments about myth are a kind of smug, self-securing firewall to the apparent ignorance and backwardness of ancient people. We protect our intellectual security against such ancient ignorance by believing nothing when it comes to myth. But notwithstanding giant bears and giant bridge builders, could this firewall to the ignorance of our ancestors be an unintended barrier to the pursuit of knowledge or even truth? I think we put up this firewall to protect what we believe is the common sense of science from the other nonsense of myth. Okay, but this is a community of questions, and so allow me to ask this question. What would happen if the firewall between science and myth became a window? Unlike a wall, a window allows light to pass freely in either direction. You might be interested to know that there is a community of scientists, another community of questioners, that would make the wall between science and myth a window so that knowledge might pass freely in either direction. Let me introduce you to some of the scientific community actively peering through this window. They are a community of scholars, researchers, technicians, historians, adventurers, and explorers in the companion fields of archaeomythology, archaeoastronomy, and geomythology. Now, by their names, it's not really difficult to understand the basic focus of these individual fields of research, but allow me to briefly describe them to you, as the rest of my presentation will lightly touch upon all of them.
Archaeomythology is the study of archaeology through the lens of mythology as a unique method of understanding ancient societies, cultures, relationships, and factual history. An early example of archaeomythology is the discovery of the ancient city of Troy in the late 1800s. The discovery of Troy in what is now modern Turkey was an important archaeological milestone that was made possible by the critical study of Homer's epic poem of men and gods, the Iliad. The Iliad was a mythic narrative of the Trojan War. It was a narrative that was equally descriptive of the physical war of men and the metaphysical war of gods. For generations, conventional archaeologists had more or less rejected Homer's writings as just mythical hyperbole. But the discovery of Troy validated a new scientific engagement with the Trojan myth. Archaeoastronomy is the study of how ancient people understood phenomena in the sky, how they articulated and interacted with the phenomena, and finally, how these phenomena inspired their culture and their mythology. One of the best examples of a long-standing archaeoastronomy project is the ongoing study of the 5,000-year-old mystery monument, Stonehenge. Through careful analysis of the monument's design, structure, geographical position, its angles and precise measurements, and of course, its legends and myths, several interesting theories have emerged about Stonehenge's ancient significance. For example, it's been argued that the monument may have been used as an observatory to track the seasonal equinox and solstice, as well as to accurately determine the alignment and timing of both solar and lunar eclipses. In an interesting alternative line of research, there is a team of archaeologists and acoustic engineers investigating legends of ambient spiritual music that was often heard during ceremonies at the site, even though there were no musicians ever present. A working theory is that the design and the configuration of the stones at Stonehenge produced the effect of a multi-tonal ancient tuning fork. <laughs> All of the theories concerning Stonehenge's origin and purpose continue to be inspired by both science and myth. Geomythology. Geomythology is the study of geological events referred to in mythology. Myths are often inspired by pre-existing extraordinary geological formations like the Devil's Tower. Other myths can be an artful or imaginative storytelling of an actual, even witnessed event like an earthquake or volcanic eruption. A really great example of geomythology is the study of the famous Oracle of Delphi, a legendary priestess of the Greek god Apollo. For almost 500 years, from the 8th to the 3rd century BC, generations of oracles gave prophecies and gazed into the unseen spiritual world uh, from Apollo's temple atop Mount Parnassus in central Greece. Although there has never been much dispute about the historical existence of priestesses who were called oracles, or the temple, which still stands in ruin today, it was the stories of their mystical behavior and otherworldly powers that became the larger mythical counterpoint to the historical reality. It was said that the oracle's inner chamber room was often filled with mysterious vapors emanating from jagged openings or large cracks in the floor of the chamber. These vapors seem to swirl around and engulf the oracle, causing her to swoon and enter into a kind of trance, a trance from which she would speak an unknown language that could only be interpreted by a select group of temple assistants. 
It was reported that these prophetic ecstasies could become so physically intense and even violent that it was thought the oracle was being possessed by the god Apollo. There are even accounts that these violent possession episodes resulted in the injury or even the death of the oracle of that time. These myths of prophetic ecstasy and possession became deeply intertwined with the actual historical record of the oracle. And it's that intertwining of myth and history that sets up the classic dilemma that I spoke of earlier, the dilemma of believing nothing because you can't believe everything whenever myth is embedded in the question. Through the centuries that followed, there was a persistent but unproven theory that the mysterious vapors of the inner chamber were the result of some kind of natural subterranean activity beneath the temple, like a hot spring or a volcanic process of some kind. In fact, by the beginning of the 20th century, conventional archaeologists had pretty much completely investigated the site at Delphi, searching for evidence that would support the vapor theory. But the traditional methods of archaeology failed to produce any such evidence. So for the next 80 years or so, the archaeology community uh, more or less dismissed these fantastic spiritual stories of the oracle uh, as being just exaggerated myths to be archived along with the other ancient Greek myths of gods and spirits. The archaeological community had pretty much settled for the believe-nothing option of myth. But then, in the 1980s, a unique team of archaeologists and geologists, some of the world's first geomythologists, utilizing modern technology, discovered a pair of deep subterranean fault lines intersecting directly beneath Delphi. The fault lines were a necessary precondition for any seismic event that could account for the stories of the large cracks in the floor of the oracle's chamber. In addition to the discovery of these deep fault lines, the geomythology team also detected an even deeper zone of hydrocarbon compounds beneath the level of the two faults. It was theorized that the combination of pressure and heat from seismic activity could have caused chemical reactions to take place in this deeper hydrocarbon layer. These chemical reactions could have released gases of various types up through the fractures created by the same seismic activity. In fact, by testing spring water around Delphi, the team did discover small traces of hydrocarbon gases present in the water. A more detailed analysis of the spring water yielded evidence of an interesting mythical suspect ethylene gas. Oh, I forgot to mention that the geomythology team also brought a forensic chemist as well as a toxicologist along the expedition. It's just a small detail. These chemical scientists determined that varying levels of ethylene gas contained in the ancient vapors of the inner chamber could pretty much explain the mysterious ecstasies of the oracle. This is because different concentrations of ethylene gas can cause a variety of physical and psychological reactions. These reactions range from mild euphoria to drunken disorientation, balance and equilibrium issues, nerve and muscle dysfunction, speech and cognitive impairment, even hallucinations and seizures with prolonged exposure. There were also a couple of interesting historical anecdotes concerning the oracle that supported the ethylene gas theory. The first anecdote was the legendary shortened lifespan 
of many priestesses that served as oracle throughout the five centuries that the temple was active. Regular prolonged exposure to ethylene gas would not only cause progressive physical and psychological deterioration, but would also explain the legends of intense ecstasies or violent possessions, which could easily be ancient code speak for seizures. Apparently, this intense spiritual ordeal caused many oracles to die as very young women. The second anecdote is an actual earthquake recorded in the area of Delphi in the year 373 BC, an earthquake that reportedly damaged the temple and surrounding structures. The reason that this earthquake may support the geomythology explanation of the oracle is that after this earthquake, stories about the oracle diminish considerably. Post-earthquake, it's evident that the revered prophetic reputation of the oracle was no longer a prominent feature of Greek history or myth. In fact, the final recorded declaration of the oracle in 362 BC, 10 years after the earthquake, is simply, the temple has fallen. Most historians believe that this is a declaration that the oracle had somehow lost her mojo, her legendary connection to the divine. Geomythologists believe that the earthquake at Delphi may have closed the fractures underneath the temple, permanently shutting down the flow of mythical vapors to the oracle. You know, of course, much of this geomythology theory cannot be completely proven. But by questioning the believing nothing proposition of myth and choosing to open the window between science and myth, these explorers have shown us an alternative path to discovering a more complete truth. This is part one of this presentation. Part two will be continued in the next podcast episode. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in joining the Question community, we meet every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary starting at 7. You can participate in the online discussion on our Facebook page, which is The Question, or on Twitter at TQCom. That's at T-Q-C-O-M-M. Our website is www.thequestion.ca. Thanks again for listening, and remember that our answers are only possible because of our questions.